We are back in the Heidelberg Catechism. I know you're all waiting for the day we finish this, so you can say, come on, let's go on to something else. But we're almost halfway through. We're starting a new section, a section about the sacraments. Today is an overview, and then we go into two weeks on baptism and three weeks on the Lord's Supper. And this, this may be a time that stretches you. Because the sacraments, as much as they are meant to bring us together, you know, communion is simply the juxtaposition of two words, common union. It's supposed to be what joins the church together. Communion is the one thing that separates the church. It separated the Lutherans from the Reformed and the Reformation. It has been a separate, the sacraments have been a separation between Anabaptists and Catholics and the Protestants, and we are still in the point of dealing with this. So, knowing that you come from a variety of backgrounds, I don't expect you all to agree with me the first time. The second time, I do. <laughs> no, it will take a little time. It's, it's like anything I started learning at seminary. I was, I was green, I didn't have a lot of background, so... A lot of things I just soaked in. But there were some things which took a lot of time of thinking and prayer and study before it really began to break home. One of them was the sovereignty of God. Another one was God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Gee, that sounds biblical, doesn't it? And that uh, another one was what are the sacraments in, in communion with that? Part of it is because in the sacraments we have a mystery. And the mystery is, as the word itself says, it's shh. It's been quiet and shushed up. And then all of a sudden it's revealed. It's been shushed up in the Old Testament but revealed in the New Testament. And if your view of the scripture is the old and new are two separate books, then you may not see the parallels that are there. You may not recognize that there is a flow from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And that God has not spoken in forked tongue, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. He has spoken throughout. It's just in the New Testament it goes deeper and stronger, and he expands upon what he had revealed in the Old Testament. Now right there, I've already given you half the lesson, so we can just go home. No, 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 we have worship at 10.30, right? But the whole idea is we're dealing with a mystery, and the mystery deals in several different areas. So if you look at your outline, you see the first one. And, well, let me first read the scripture. That's probably an appropriate thing to do when you're going to teach, correct? Amen. Correct. So let's stand. In honor of the word that God has given to us, and in honor of the God who, whose word it is. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5, and then down through verse to 16. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then down to verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. Our catechism begins on question 65. It's a continuation, as, as we have seen, of the idea of the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Apostles' Creed? First section is the Father, second section is the Son. Third is the Holy Spirit, but they didn't stop when they got to uh, Amen in the Apostles' Creed. The writers continued on and began to talk about how the Holy Spirit operates in the life of believers. And by the time we get to Lord's Day 25, question 65, the question goes, since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, where does this faith come from? Note, it doesn't say, how did you manufacture this faith? How did you build up your own faith? How does it rise within you? It goes on and answers it saying, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. There's two sections. The Holy Spirit, in another version of the Catechism, it says, creates faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel, confirms, creates and confirms. One by the word, the preaching of the word, and the second by the sacraments. See, this is a nice transition moving into it. And it really brings a question to us. How does faith come to us? It comes by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who does it. How does he do it? That's part of the mystery. That's part of the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts by the preaching of the word. Uh, you can go to a passage like Ephesians 1. Oh, wrong direction. Ephesians 1. Where he is, Paul in this section is talking about the triune work. He's talked about the Father and the Son, and then he gets down to verse 13. And he says, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it. Or if you turn back to Galatians 3, passage we used a couple weeks ago where Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. How was he publicly portrayed as crucified? By Paul's preaching of the word. I mean, they weren't there at Golgotha. They didn't see Christ died, but Paul painted the picture of Christ dying using the Old Testament scriptures, and they saw him. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hmm. Did you work up the Spirit in your life by yourself or by grace through faith alone? And the answer, the rhetorical, almost rhetorical question, yeah, that's the way it happened. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, are you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? Are you following the law and that's what's making you a better person? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the, the answer to all those questions, it was the Spirit. Without him, you wouldn't have believed. Without him, you wouldn't be able to grow. Without him, you would not be able to do anything. Just as it happened with Abraham. Notice Paul doesn't say, just as it happened with the apostles. New Testament, after the, after the cross. No. Goes all the way back to Father Abraham had seven sons. Father, you know, seven sons had Father Abraham. Don't you, don't you know that little song? Abraham was convicted, converted by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, but there's what the work of the Spirit. Or as Jesus would say, it's the Spirit who gives life, not the flesh. It's the Spirit who is giving life. Or as he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he has this little phrase, but the spirit comes like the wind. They're calling for 30, 40 mile an hour breeze this afternoon. <laughs> breeze, breeze is a really poor way to put it. We're, we have an idea. Well, it's coming from the west. Maybe. It could slip up to the north or down to the south. Where does the wind come? And we in our scientific age think we have it all figured out. No, we don't. Because although they have said there's a 30 to 40 mile an hour wind, it could change and it would not be here at all. Where does the wind come from? We don't know. It's a mystery. Where does the Holy Spirit come from? Well, we know it comes from the Father and the Son. But why does the Holy Spirit come when the Holy Spirit comes in your life? Why did it take, as normally happens, Several times, maybe a multitude of times, for you to hear the gospel before you believed the gospel. Now, some have heard it for the first time, and bingo. Faith enters in by the Spirit, and they believe it. But most of us, you know, I spent my whole young life sitting on the second pew, right in front of the pulpit, listening to this man who proclaimed the gospel and told us about Jesus. And it wasn't until I was almost 19 years old that it hit home. Why did it happen when I was nine? I could have saved a whole lot of trouble if I'd been nine and really started growing. Why 19? Why not 39? Why not 59? It's because the Spirit comes when the Spirit is sent. And that's the mystery. We can, we can kind of hate that we took so long to come to the gospel. Oh, I wish I had been four years old. I had all that time to study and work and learn and grow and mature. 
But that was not the plan of God. But the Spirit came and you were changed. That's part of the mystery. It's the same way in life. The Spirit does His work and we simply respond to that work. Again, that Galatians passage. Did you continue in the flesh or did you continue by the Spirit? That's by the Spirit. Even Philippians 2 talks about how work out your salvation in fear and trembling for, you know, if you, if you stop at the comma, it's just a yes, good American individualism, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, go out and do it. No, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work his good pleasure. Now, who is a God who is at work within you? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So why, you know, if it's the Holy Spirit who's at work to, to develop you, and you're simply responding to that, then you have to allow him to lead, and you have to allow him to empower, and you have to allow him to direct you, and you have to be sensitive to him. And that's a mystery. Why is it when I pray for something to happen, it takes so, so long? God, didn't you say, ask and you will receive Seek and you shall find, knock and you shall, uh, and you shall, it shall be open to you. Then you look at the verbs and it says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Oh man, I'm an American. I want my food fast when I go through McDonald's. Come on. I stand at Arby's for five minutes waiting for anyone to even come onto the phone to take my order. Ah! But you see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Why is it some Christians can be Christians for a while and not be filled with the Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You have to give him as a sovereign God his timetable, his way. And it's humbling because ultimately we cannot, we cannot give ourselves any praise for anything we do because it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. I've had people... When I was preaching, sometimes when I teach, they come up and say, oh, great teaching, great preaching, wonderful. And they say, you really touched me when you talked about blah, 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 whatever it is. And I go back to my study and I look at my notes and say, I didn't talk about that at all. I didn't even mention that word. Where in the world did they get that? I said, that's the Holy Spirit dealing with that person at that time in their life. It's through the word, but... He humbled, he did it, and it humbles, it ought to humble us. We can't, we, we can only boast in the cross and in Christ and who God is. Not to us, not to us, but to yourself be glory, O Lord. So one of the psalmists said. And the Holy Spirit is the one who confirms our salvation by the preaching of the word, but second of all, by the sacraments. That's why they are so important. And again, he mysteriously works in a font and at a table. We're not even too sure exactly how he works when we come. I mean, that's one of the reasons why there is such a huge divide, and it is huge, between denominations and people upon baptism and the communion. Because it's not a way in which the Spirit works by a timeline 
or by a pattern. The spirit works as the spirit wants to work. So sometimes you can come to this table and you eat the bread and drink the cup and you go back on, whoa, what, what happened? Hey, hey, I was, nothing. I didn't get anything. And then it hits you about three hours later. Or sometimes you come and you take the bread and you're almost like Luther the first time he performed the Mass. When he realized in his thinking he was holding the blood of Christ in his hand. And we'll talk about that later. But he was holding the blood of Christ and he lifted it up and he was so anxious and he was so fearful. This is the blood of Christ that he dropped, he, he began to shake and a drop came out and landed on the pure white linen of the table and his father was flabbergasted. How could you do that? Desecrate the blood of Christ. But you see the spirit grabbed hold of him at that moment. Sometimes at the moment, sometimes later. Sometimes it doesn't happen for a while. Why? It's a mystery. Why does the Holy Spirit do what he does when he wants to do it? Why can't he work on our timetable? Because there's two spiritual laws. There's only one God and you ain't him. That's it. Okay? The Holy Spirit confirms our salvation. Holy Spirit alone can increase your faith. You can work as much as you want, but unless the Spirit is doing it, and that's why you need the release of the Spirit, the baptism to allow Him to do that work. That's why you pray before you read the Word and before you come here, and that's why you, you seek the Spirit, and because only He can do it. And therefore you are dependent upon Him, and only He can transform the heart, reform what has been deformed. Uh, the kind of Christianity we have today that basically says you can do it is not a biblical Christianity because only the Holy Spirit does. Only the Holy Spirit does it. Again, that doesn't mean you don't cooperate. You work out your salvation in fear trembling. For it is the Spirit who is at work within you. Okay? So don't don't go to the opposite of pietism that says let go let God no you have a role to play but yours is always secondary it's in response to what the spirit says then the catechism goes on what are the nature of the sacraments the sacraments it says are visible holy signs and seals appointed by God for this end that by their use he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that of free grace. He, of free grace, he grants us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for the sake of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. They purposely used the word sacraments. Uh, again, this was a part of the issue in the Reformation with different different uh, denominations that were moving, that were beginning. But they use the word sacraments. We use three, two other different terms. We call them rites. That is uh, formal acts or observances or ceremonies. And so, so they say, well, we're going to have the rite of Holy Communion today. Or we call them ordinances. 
which is an established prescribed practice. That is, we've done this all through the church. It's an ordinance. It's a practice. Why? By golly, we ought to be doing it ourselves, shouldn't we? If we're going to be part of the historic church. But both of those lack some of the depth of that word sacrament. That's why I hold on to that word sacrament. Because the sacrament, word sacrament, it comes from the Latin uh, sacramentum, which means a sacred act. It's more than just a observance. It's more than just a prescribed practice. It is a sacred act. That gives some gravitas to it, some weight. That says that when we do it, there's something special happening. God has set this apart for a very specific reason. And when he sets something apart, we need to be careful how we use it. Uh, he has assigned it and made a commitment to it. That's sacramentum, the Latin, which was the Vulgate, which was the translation they used up until the Reformation when they developed a, the Greek translation, the original language of the, uh, of the scriptures. And then they found out that the word that was used there, the Vulgate sacramentum, was a word mysterium. That's the Greek word. For instance, turn with me to Colossians 1. Verse 26. He has been talking, Paul's been talking about being a minister according to the stewardship from God and to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the gospel of this mystery. And I think you should put a semicolon right there, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. That's the thing that was kind of in the Old Testament, but now is being proclaimed out loud. In fact, the word uh, mysterium or what we call mystery in the Greek means to shut the mouth. Don't tell anybody. And you all know the best way to keep a secret. Don't tell anybody. Don't even think about telling anybody. He says, that's what the Old Testament had. That's a mystery. But now it's been revealed. It's public knowledge. And the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hidden for ages, now yours. And a couple other passages that deal with the very same thing. But this is what happens, and this is why I like the words the sacrament or the mystery of Holy Communion, the mystery of baptism. Here God reveals himself to us by the work of the Holy Spirit within us as to what is taking place in front of us. Let me see if I can say that again. Here is where God reveals to us what the Holy Spirit is doing within us by what we see in front of us. That brings, that's, that's preaching. He preaches to us this way. And therefore, the, the sacraments have always been considered one of the main means of grace. The way in which God 
portrays and the way in which God gives his grace to his people. We have a lot of means of grace. Reading the word of God, worshiping, service, prayer, listening to the sermon, preaching the word of God. And there are others, means of grace. But one of the most highest and holiest is when you come to the sacraments. Because by them, since God has set them apart for a very particular use, he says, I will send my spirit to use that to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the riches of God for you. So the emphasis on the, of the sacrament is on what the sacrament means for the relationship of Christ and the believer. It's not on the emphasis of doing it and having it done, or even how it's done. Peg and I were at a church recently where they began with a time of praise and then they immediately went into communion. And I'm going, everything, every reformed corpuscle in my blood was rebelling against that. And I'm going, no! It's supposed to come after the word is proclaimed. It's the word and the sacrament, not the sacrament, and maybe we'll get to the word. And then I had to realize, well... Yeah, that's not my style, but it's not necessarily the outward form. It's the inward form. And one of the things I appreciated, when they came to the table, he recited the words of Paul and the words of Jesus at the table. And it gave, and it, it, it was the preaching, in a sense, of the word with the table. And I had to repent. Nobody likes to Repent. Least alone a Gerhardt. We're Germans. We don't repent. We just go ahead, forge ahead. You know. But that's that's what you understand. What is important is that when you look at the sacraments, whether it's baptism or communion, you are looking at the relationship between Christ and the believers. I put that plural because many times we say between Christ and me. No, 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 no. These are public community sacraments there for all of us and we need to think about everyone when we think about that so it's not just me taking the wafer and the cup it's I am with a group of people Christians who are taking the wafer and the cup I am only one part of the whole body and the whole body in this particular congregation is doing it and that's what's beautiful. That's what's gorgeous. So the mystery is, comes to us in what, is what I've heard called a seed form. And that's why you have this word here. A seed form. That is God plants in each of the sacraments. And every time you take it, a little seed of the gospel. And then he allows it to grow. We are past the harvest time. And the harvest has been taken in. But somebody better had planted the seed come springtime. But the seed is planted and takes shape. That's what happens in every time we celebrate the sacrament. A seed is planted in the heart of every believer that God will use to grow and accomplish its purpose 
Now, again, it's like planting a crop. It may not happen in one week. Pity the farmer who goes out in his field after he put the seed in after a week and he opens it up to look at the seed. Are you going? Are you growing? Is it happening? No. He waits for the water and the rain and the sunshine and everything else to take place and then he watches as it grows by itself. And so the Holy Spirit takes a seed, puts a seed in baptism and in the communion and then he begins to help it to grow. And I think he does that every time you observe the sacraments. Even in baptism. When we, when you, when we do baptism, when I've done baptism, I remind the congregation, this is not simply something between the person and God. Remember your own baptism and remember what it means to you. And allow the Holy Spirit to remind you that you are a child of God. You've been identified, enlivened. You are a child of God. And what does that mean to you? And therefore, you are taking part in a baptism. Not just the sprinkling or the dunking with water. It's the heart set upon the cross of Christ. So, back to the catechism. It talks about a fourfold definition of what it is. It's visible. It's visible. It does the same thing the word does, but in a different way. When you hear the word, when you preach or heard, hear preaching of the word, or when you read the word, you are using your eye gate and your ear gate. It's audible. And therefore, that's how the word operates. But when you get to the sacraments, they're visual. And, you, and not only visual, but they're using the taste gate. When you put water on a person, they get wet. It's not like when you got a shower, and I hope you got a shower this morning. It's not like when you got a shower, but you remember this is cleansing. This is God dealing with us. When you take the communion wafer, and I, I really appreciate you use wafers. For most of my ministry, they, they had us, churches had a secret recipe for the bread. And they, you know, Aunt Matilda had to make the communion bread, right? Because she makes the best communion bread there's ever been. Hope there's no Matildas here. <laughs> but it was always squishy and soft. But when you have a wafer, a crunchy wafer, and you crunch that, and you taste it, you hear, and you, and, and you, you kind of resonate with the body of Christ given for you. Not broken, the Bible never says the body of Christ was broken. But he was given for you. And he took upon himself the crunching weight of the, of the holiness of God on your behalf. And then you come to the cup. And again, I'm Presbyterians, I don't know why we ever did this. I do know why. It had to do with the temperance movement and we gave in to the culture. And for some reason, some people, you cannot drink wine with alcoholism or the possibility you don't want to do that and you shouldn't do it. But there's something about drinking wine. I always go to the bronze plate because when you take that cup 
and you taste that wine, it is bitter. And it reminds you that the blood that was shed was a bitter shedding for your sins. In the old building, I think we had a couple grandkids with came to us, came with us one Sunday, right? Excuse me. Okay. We took communion. We didn't tell them what what cup to take, and they just reached for the bronze. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of fancy. That really looks good. And they went back to their seat, and they and the look the look on their face. Whoa. <laughs> And now you can bring us up on grandchildren abuse for we gave them liquor <laughs> before they were 18 or 21, I guess it is. It hit home, the bitterness of what the cross was all about. See, that's the taste. And it's visual. You get to see it. When you enter in, unless you come in through these two doors, you go right past the business baptismal font. Maybe we ought to move it in the middle so you can't miss it. But it's right there and you remember the way in which you entered into the Christian life was by the rebirth, the cleansing of Jesus Christ. Every week when you come to this table you remind yourself I am being nourished not because of my good looks and because I'm such a great person and I can do so many wonderful things. You're being nurtured by the blood, the body, and the blood of Christ applied to you. See, and that preaches. Sometimes that preaches better than preaching, because it's we're in a visual age. You taste it, you feel it. It comes home to you. That's not to say John doesn't do a great job, or Greg, or John, or it is a different way of saying the same thing. And when we say it, it comes home. But it's the same message as the word. And you need the word and the sacrament together. You need the doctrine, the teaching, and the action to understand exactly what. Again, if you didn't have the word, you'd come up here and you'd take this little tiny wafer and you'd take this little tiny cup and you'd go back and like a little kid who said one time, I'm still hungry. <laughs> When's the real food going to (laughs) come? No, 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 no. For those of us who are believers, the real food was given. We participated in the blood of Christ. We participated in the body of Christ. And we'll just deal with that when we get to communion. Second of all, it also is holy. It's set apart. God has a specific purpose for it. And that gives it weight and importance. Therefore, it is not to be taken lightly, nor is it to be ignored. Say, oh, you don't know what I did this week. It was horrible. That's exactly why you need communion. To be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ for that very sin. And it has been covered if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you need it to be able to see Visually, the cross of Christ. I've known people who have been in the church for a long time, and eventually, one Sunday, they came to communion. And it really hit home what this was all about. Again, the Holy Spirit, in his mysterious way, had planted seeds before, but all of a sudden, it came to fruit. And when they came 
to the table. They were converted because they saw and tasted Christ for them. The mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've known others who have been looking for healing and they prayed and prayed, they asked to seek, they knock and nothing would happen but they came to the communion table and they recognized Christ is my rock, he is my healer, he is my giver and they were healed while taking communion. The mystery in seed form of something that happened at the table Isn't that great? That's why it's holy. It's set apart to do exactly that. Now, we don't go to the extent that some do, where there's sacred water that you dip your hand in when you come in to the place, or that at the end of the service, only the pastors or priests or the ordained people can finish off the bread and drink the cup. And we'll go into that when we get to the sacrament. But there is something set apart. It's a sign. It points to something else. And I've been talking about this. It points to the cross. And you all know what a sign is. You're driving down 35 and you're coming near Woodman and you see this sign, Woodman, one half mile away. Turn right or, yeah, turn right. Get off the highway. And you don't say to yourself, oh, there's Woodman. I passed it. Now you say, Woodman is there. It's a sign that points to Woodman. And when you get off, then you eventually find Woodman. And you have all these promises that are given before you, and, and all of a sudden they become confirmed and sealed by the word and the sacrifice, sacrament. You hear the word preached, and then you take the sacrament. It's been pointing you to Christ, and then you remember Christ and the cross. You remember the promises of God. When I've been doing baptism in the past, uh, we're Presbyterians. We baptize infants. We tell the promises of God. And we're going to get into that next week or the week after. Aren't you just excited? Aren't you? Bring your tomatoes. <laughs> I can duck. You rehearse the promises of God that are not only for these children, but for all believers. When we get to communion, always been my practice, when we come to this table, I recite the words of, of given to us by Paul, that I, Paul, pass on to you that which I have received, that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and having given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And in a similar manner, after the supper, he took the cup the cup, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Nothing magical about those words. It doesn't mean that something changes. But what happens is up here and up here with those who hear it. It shows it's a sign It's pointing me back to the cross. And finally, it's a seal. That is established, it certifies, it preserves. Those of you who like to do canning, you put the cans in and you boil the water. I think that's how you do it. But eventually, you hear a pop, and the seal is made. And you go, yes, they're preserved. And so you put on there, 
Grandma's cherries preserved. <laughs> and you make 4,000 cans and you give them away for 4,000 years. <laughs> but the seal is set and they are preserved. That's what happens in baptism. It confirms a word that has been preached so that our eyes may be raised to see the cross. And for us to be preserved by and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's not the sacrament, it's not the bread and the cup, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This, this sanctuary is beautiful, and part of it is the sealing. You know what? I, I'm glad we got out of 144 doors. Yeah, because it was flat. I walked in there and I thought, ooh, it's going to come. <laughs> ooh, I can't stand up tall. But this ceiling is meant what ceilings in, in uh, churches are meant to do. Draw your eyes up. That's the beauty of cathedrals. When you get into this huge building, the, you don't look at the floor. You draw your eyes up and you see that's what exactly what a sacrament does. It draws your eyes back to Christ. In your outline, I gave you a few quotes from some of the church leaders, that great North, Amer North African Augustine, Calvin, Westminster Larger Catechism. Let's look at the purpose. And again, I've said this, but I will reiterate it. It's helped you to better understand the cross and to remind you that the whole of salvation from start to end depends upon the ministry of Christ and the operation of the Holy Spirit. It humbles us, and it ought to humble us deeply. It's not us. It's not us. It's all the work of God. And what are the number of the sacraments? Again, this is the issue of the Reformation. For the Roman Catholic Church, they had seven, and I listed the five we Protestants do not use, confirmation, or as it became uh, a word told in uh, some Protestant churches, commissioning, taking your faith on your own, holy orders, the priesthood. See, if we were Roman Catholic, you would now look at Father John and Father Anvesh because they have been gone through holy orders and ordained into, and that was a sacrament. Now, not for good old Protestants, we are too mundane for that. Marriage, the sacrament. Penance, receive forgiveness. Extreme unction, preparation for death. We do not accept those for several reasons. And the, the, I put the qualities there. First of all, Jesus had to institute the sacrament. He had to consecrate them. He, he did it in baptism, in his own baptism in the River Jordan. And when he gave the Great Commission... While you are going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three-part God. But he declared baptized. And then on the night before he died, he took the Passover and he changed it from the Passover into Holy Communion. And he instituted it. It's a continuation of the Old, sac Old Testament sacraments, and, and this has always been Protestant, especially Reformational teaching, that baptism is the 
is equivalent or is the outflow from circumcision and communion comes from Passover. It's a seal of the covenant relationship and he talks about it that way. It's meant to be perpetual. You, we just don't do this for a couple centuries and say, oh, we've got better things to do now that we are away from those pesky first century Christians. <laughs> and the, the last part, I, everyone can participate. You know, if marriage is a sacrament, there are a few people who cannot participate in that. If baptism is only for boys, like circumcision was only for boys, you girls are left out. And we don't want to leave you out at all. But baptism is for any believer, male or female. The... uh, the other thing is, and this is a question I usually get, why is foot washing not a sacrament? Remember, Jesus on the night before he betrayed, loving his disciples, he loved them to the end, and he put on, he took off his cloak and he put on the form of a servant and he went around and washed his disciples' feet and he said, you ought to do this. Well, there's this little pesky word that's in that passage on verse 15, it says, I've given to you this as an example of how you are to love one another. Well, sacraments aren't examples. They are seals and signs and they are holy and they they are visible. Foot washing may be a wonderful thing, especially at a retreat or sometimes wash another person's feet, humbling, but it's not a sacrament. So there we are, and there we are, Tempest Fugit. This is what we're going to take a look at in the next few weeks, uh, next two weeks on baptism. And again, uh, I may present some things that you find objectionable. Fine, grow up. No. (laughs) We can talk about this. We've been talking about this for centuries. I will try to give a reasonable argument why it ought to be done a certain way or what it means. And you can say, that was the most unreasonable thing I ever heard. Where did we get this guy? But we will talk about it. And we will try to show from a Protestant reformational viewpoint what are the sacraments, because that's what the creed does. You don't have to agree with me. You can disagree. You're wrong, but you can disagree. <laughs> no. But we'll deal, we'll deal with it. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let's close with prayer. Once again, O oh Lord, we are dependent upon you and we rejoice. You use these times maybe to expand our thinking. Maybe to be a time in which we have to wrestle with issues we thought we'd settled but still need to be wrestled with. And yet as all of the mystery of the work of your Holy Spirit as we do it. My prayer is that the seeds that have been planted by your Spirit in our hearts and our minds may begin to take root and grow. And that as we consider what 
your word, the teaching of the church throughout the centuries, and what your Holy Spirit is saying to us, we may grow and we may mature and we may become better followers of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. For we ask this in his name and all of God's children said, amen.